you have your copy of Scripture, we are in Jonah chapter 2 again. This week, Jonah chapter 2. Looking again at verses 1 through 10 of Jonah chapter 2. No, I will not preach the same sermon I preached last time. But we will look at the same verses. Jonah chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version this morning. Jonah chapter 2, 1 through 10. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me, and all your waves and your billows passed over me. And then I said, I'm driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life, and the deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. At the roots of the mountains I went down to the land, whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you and to your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish and vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. This morning I want us to see from this passage of scripture God's mercy in his wrath. God's mercy in his wrath. As I've stated uh, previously, and I will uh, every message as we go through the book of Jonah, we are using this book by Sinclair Ferguson, Man Overboard, as a guide. And so um, just to let you know that, and you can always uh, order the book from the Banner of Truth Trust if you so desire to do so. But uh, we're kind of using it as our launching pad for this sermon um, series through the book of Jonah. This morning, we're going to spend some time looking at two aspects of God that many uh, think are opposed to one another. And that is both God's mercy and his wrath. In fact, we'll even go a step further and we will see how even in God's wrath, there is mercy. And we, of course, are using Jonah chapter 2 in order to understand this. We see that God used the instruments of nature uh, to work a spirit of repentance in the life of his servant Jonah. Jonah was suffering. He had been thrown into the sea and he was entombed in the belly of a fish. And as we looked at last week, as Jonah was in the, the belly of the fish, he began to cling to the written word of God and seek the conscience presence of God in prayer. Jonah had to experience the grace of God, not in just some sort of uh, superficial way, but he had to experience the grace of God deep down in his soul. He had to be refocused on who God was and to know God's ways. In order to understand God's grace, he had to experience God's grace. Jonah had to come to the point where 
he no, no, no longer knew the presence of God and he now needs to recognize there is no fleeing from God's presence. But not only that, he had to have this idea that there is a conscience presence of who God is. In other words, Jonah needed to feel God's presence. He needed to know that God was there with him. As Jonah prayed there in the belly of the great fish, he began to realize a great deal about who he was and who God is. And the first thing that Jonah realizes is this, that his suffering, that Jonah's suffering comes from the hand of God. His suffering comes from the hand of God. This can sometimes be difficult for anyone to understand that God would allow suffering or even cause suffering in the life of a person. Part of the reason that this is difficult uh, for us to understand is because for whatever reason in our culture, and when I say our culture, specifically American culture, we have been presented with a watered-down Bible that proclaims that God only wants what's best for you in your life or that you can only get your best life now, so to speak, and that God always operates in the realm of of what is for, um, you know, what we like or what is for what makes us happy instead of that God operates in the realm of what is for our good and for his glory. And that's the realm that God always operates in. What is for our good as followers of Christ and what is for his glory. In chapters 1 and 2 of Jonah, there's a striking comparison we see in them the difference in Jonah chapter 1. It interprets the events from Jonah's point of view. It's, it's as if we're reading this in Jonah chapter 1. is This is a man's point of view. And chapter 2 interprets the events that happened to Jonah from God's point of view. If we look at chapter 1 verse 15, Jonah is narrating for us. And he says, so they picked up Jonah, speaking of the sailors, and they hurled him into the sea. However, when we look at chapter 2, verse 3, Jonah says this, you cast me into the deep. You see the difference in perspective? One perspective from man's point of view, these sailors picked Jonah up, they threw him into the sea, and then the next perspective is God's. You, God, cast me into the deep. In theology, this is the difference between secondary and primary causes. Spiritually, Jonah is experiencing the sense that God's presence is so near, that God's presence is so real, that it is so close to him that, the, that every event in his life is seen to him as being under God's control. And there's something that is very peaceful about that. There's something that is very peaceful about right theology. Jonah knew that God was in control of all things. If, if God is not in control of all things, then he's not God. It was not a new thing for him to know that God ruled over the sea. In fact, he told the sailors that his God made the sea. However, what we see in chapter 2 is Jonah speaking as someone who has been awakened by the presence of God. 
And when God works in us like he did in Jonah, we begin to understand God more and more and more. And we begin to realize that God is indeed in control of all things. Or in the words of R.C. Sproul, there is not one molecule running loose on this earth that God is not in control of. When we are awakened from our spiritual slumber, we become very conscious of the weight of God's judgment. We recognize that we truly are sinners in the presence of a holy God and that we have lived our lives without even a thought of the majesty of God. We come to see the circumstances and the sufferings in a different light because we see them as under God's all-encompassing present. We come to appreciate not only that God is sovereign over all, but that God is indeed living and He is active amongst us. He is purposely carrying out His will in the world today. This is how it was with Jonah. He's enlightened to the understanding of what the Apostle Paul would later write in Romans chapter 11, verse 36. For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever and ever. Amen. Jonah could have, while in the belly of that great fish, said, Boy, this is an unfortunate circumstance. I can't believe I'm finding myself in the belly of this great fish. He could have said that. Jonah could have said, what a strange coincidence this is. Here I was running from the Lord, and now I'm in the belly of a fish. Boy, that's odd. He could have said that. And when he got spit out onto dry land, Jonah could have said, boy, I sure am lucky. He could have said that. But that's not what he says. Because Jonah is awake to the things of God. Jonah has become sensitive to the touch of God. He knows when God draws near. The person that runs around thinking that everything in this world is just some sort of grand coincidence is not awake to the spiritual things that God is doing around them. Practically speaking, there are very few theological principles that are more important in the life of a Christian than to recognize that God is sovereign over all things. The fact that God in His grace is determined to draw us near to Himself Whatever the cost may be. Additionally, if God so chooses to use suffering of any kind in our life to draw us near to himself, there is no greater comfort from the sense of despair than to understand that God is sovereignly ruling over every single thing and that there is a reason and some sort of purpose and that we can have joy even in the midst of suffering. And it's for that reason that we can accept our situation, that God is ruling over everything and that we can give God praise even in the midst of suffering to know that God is sovereign and he's ultimately using everything for our greatest good even our suffering and it brings joy when we recognize that God is always working to make us more like Christ 
and that he works every single event of our lives together to make us more like Christ. We can rejoice in the good that is produced in suffering and in tribulation. Someone asked C.S. Lewis, why do the righteous suffer? Why not, he replied. They're the only ones who can take it. Joni Erickson Tata came to this understanding when she says this, I really don't mind the inconvenience of being paralyzed if my faithfulness to God in this wheelchair will bring glory to him. When God brings suffering into your life as a Christian, be it mild or drastic, he is forcing you to decide on issues you have been avoiding. He is pressing you to ask yourself some questions. Am I going to continue to try to live in two worlds, obeying Christ and my own sinful desires? Or am I going to refuse to worry? Or am I going to be grateful in the trials? Am I going to abandon my sins? In short am I going to be like Christ he provides the suffering but the choice is yours she goes on but today as I look back I am convinced that the whole ordeal of my paralyzed or my paralyzation was inspired by his love let me read that again this woman confined to a wheelchair but today as I look back I am convinced that the whole ordeal of my paralyzation was inspired by his love. I wasn't a rat in a maze. I wasn't the brunt of some cruel, cruel divine joke. God had reasons behind my suffering. And learning some of them has made all the difference in the world. Or how about the words of Job, who lost everything? He says, I know that you can do all things, and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. I heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dirt and ashes. How about Jonathan Edwards, one of the greatest preachers our world has ever seen, said the most gracious words of God was generally performed, or the most gracious work of God was generally performed when he was preaching on the sovereignty of God. There's something about when we see God for who he is, when we sense the presence of the living Lord and that he really is sovereign over all things, then spiritual restoration is not far behind there can be comfort found in the sovereignty of God but but by listening and seeing only the sovereignty of God can also bring a terrifying sight this is why Jonah had to see more than just that God is sovereign sovereign over all things he had to see more than just his suffering came from the hand of God because that's a terrifying thing to stop and think about. But Jonah also had to see this, that God punishes sin. 
God punishes sin. As Jonah cries out from the belly of the great fish, he's not doing so as someone that just wants the sovereign Lord to hear them, but he's crying out as a child in recognition that he's being punished by his father. This is not some sort of arbitrary punishment, but the punishment has purpose and function and it's restoration or restorative and it's disciplinary and how it functions. We see this play out here in chapter 2 in a few different ways. Look at verses 5 and 6. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head. At the roots of the mountains I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Now, if it stopped there, that's pretty depressing. But Jonah goes on to say, Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O oh Lord, my God. So Jonah has this recognition that God punishes sin, but, but when all seems lost, when everything is gloomy, Jonah sees the reason for hope. However, more than that, he knows that his punishment for sin has a purpose. This is the difference between punishment and being condemned. If we examine further into the chapter, we learn more reasons to believe that Jonah understood that God punishes sin in order to bring discipline and restoration. In verse 3, Jonah's main concern is that he's cast into the deep. In verse 4, he transitions to being more concerned with being driven from the presence of the Lord. This once again is a realization of how someone who understands the hand of the Lord at work behind the circumstances of life, Jonah moves from from this uh, over being concerned with his overly physical condition to the only thing that matters, which is his relationship with God. It is the same way with us. When we understand that God is at work in all circumstances, we move from the concern of the physical to knowing all that really matters in our life is our relationship with God. Finally, Jonah demonstrates characteristics of someone who is being punished for their sin. Listen to what Proverbs says to us. In Proverbs 3, 11 and 12, it says, My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. In chapter 1, Jonah despised the Lord's discipline. In chapter 2, Jonah is a man in despair. Jonah went from despisement to despair until he realized that no matter how painful the discipline was, it would yield in him God's intended purpose. Jonah recognized that God is sovereign and therefore his suffering came from God. He recognized that God punishes sin, but there's one last thing that Jonah must see before he is restored. And that's this. God gives grace. God gives grace. We see a pattern emerging in Jonah chapter 2. And how God deals with his reluctant servant Jonah. Jonah's sin had cast him down. He sank to the roots of the mountain, verse 6 says. It tells us, but, but we read, then God brought him up from the pit. 
In verse 4, we read that Jonah's sin had cut him out from the sight of God, but God brought him in. Verse 7, my prayer came to you in your holy temple. Jonah was in the pit of his own sinfulness, but God reached down into the pit and rescued him. He did not leave him there. God rescued Jonah from the mud and the mire. He set his feet on solid ground. God gave Jonah grace. Jonah went from the deepest hell in the to being in the presence of God. He says, I was, I, my, my soul was in shield. And he goes to the presence of God. He understands the words he prayed. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried. And what's he say? And you heard my voice. You heard my voice. And when we come to the end of the prayer, we see that Jonah is a changed man. God has touched his life in a profound way that God has become real to him in a way that he had not previously known. The grace of God gave Jonah and uh, so much and it produced so much in his life. And I would say... That not only did the grace of God produce so much in the life of Jonah, but the grace of God should produce so much in the life of a Christ follower. God gives grace. We should be so thankful for the grace that God gives to us. So let's look at some of these things real quick that God's grace produces. First of all, God's grace produces compassion. Those who lack compassion lack in God's grace. When we turn our back on God, then we fail to see others the way God sees them. And we close our hearts to the needs of our fellow men. It was this way for Jonah, and it's still this way for us today. Stop and think for a moment how the Jews felt that salvation came uh, from the Jews. And, and they felt that it ended with the Jews, so it came from the Jews and it ends with the Jews. This was the belief, and so when Jonah was on that boat in chapter 1, and he saw these pagan sailors calling out to their gods, he could have easily laughed it off and, and said, look at these guys calling out to their pagan gods he could have said they were deserving of whatever punishment was coming their way because after all they were pagans however Jonah placed himself beside these pagans because he knew that he was the one that was under God's judgment he began to have compassion on them he had he had to have compassion in order for him to go to Nineveh in the first place and now that Jonah has received the grace of God He's ready to show compassion to others. When we truly receive God's grace, it produces compassion in our lives. Jonah now gets it. That is why he says in verse 8 that those who pay regard to vain idols, which are pagans, forsake their hope of steadfast love. In other words, they forfeit the grace that could be theirs before Jonah despised ungodly people. But now he has witnessed God's judgment on his own soul. 
on his own ungodly heart, and now he's filled with compassion. Now that he's felt what it's like to be far from God, Jonah can understand what the Ninevites are going through as they are far from God. They're no longer the heathen enemy, but instead they are men and women and children who are under God's righteous judgment. And their only hope is to hear the voice of warning from the prophet Jonah and receive the grace of God. And church, there's a powerful, powerful lesson for us today as a church and as individuals. If grace does not make us like Christ... If it does not produce in us a compassion for the lost and for those that have never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ, then we don't know grace. If we lack in compassion to those that are lost and dying and condemned to hell, which what we say is true, then we don't know God's grace. Think of Jonah for a minute and how he perverted his own thinking. He was living in a nation where they knew the way of salvation because of the mercy of God because he had given his mercy to Israel. Jonah felt that they deserved God's grace, that there was something in the Israelites that was deserving of the grace of God. And therefore, because he felt that they deserved God's grace, there were others that did not deserve God's grace grace and that's an absolute perversion of the grace of God yet this is the very idea that lies in the hearts of some churches and some people who profess to be evangelical Christians oh we may not say it but we sure do think it some believe that they are Other people who don't deserve the gospel. We deserve the gospel. But they don't deserve the gospel. You say, well, pastor, how do you know that? You know how I know that? Because our actions prove it. Our actions prove that we literally believe That we deserve the gospel and other people don't deserve the gospel. Because we refuse so often, churches refuse so often to exhaust any resources, to exhaust their lives, to take the gospel to other people. And by our actions, we're saying we deserve the gospel, but they don't deserve the gospel. I deserve the gospel, but my neighbor doesn't. I deserve the gospel, but my coworker doesn't. I deserve the gospel, but my family member doesn't. I deserve the gospel, but my state doesn't. My nation doesn't. Another nation doesn't. I deserve it. God made me born in America, so why would the people in another nation, they don't deserve the gospel? That's exactly what we're saying. That's exactly where Jonah was. We deserved it. We're the nation of Israel. We deserve to know salvation. We deserve to know the grace of God, but they don't. When we think or act like others do not deserve God's grace, we show that we know very little about our own need, and we prove that we do not feel the judgment of God on our own lives. It is proof that we know little of the grace of God. 
And let me just be honest. If we, by our actions, show or in our heart, actually believe that other people don't deserve the gospel, we should be ashamed. Church, we should tremble when we think of how serious God took the attitude of his servant Jonah who refused to take the gospel to the Ninevites. It should cause us to tremble that God took so serious his servant's refusal to take the gospel to the Ninevites, especially when we think of our own lives and our refusal to take the gospel to other people. We should tremble and say, God, how could I be so disobedient? God's grace produces compassion. Secondly, God's grace produces dedication. Look what Jonah says in verse 9. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. This is a contrast with verse 8 when he says that those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. It would seem like Jonah has not been fully dedicated to the Lord, which is pretty obvious because he did attempt to flee from the Lord. But because of God's grace, he's brought into deeper dedication to the Lord. It seems like this dedication takes him back to some sort of significant time or event or something in his life because he says, what I have vowed, I will pay. When was this time? When did he make this vow? We don't know. Was it when he was in the belly of the fish or was it years prior to that? Perhaps when he first heard the call to be a prophet? We don't really no, we do not know, but he had made a vow to the Lord at some point, perhaps in the belly of the fish. He was remembering something from years prior, but it seemed like only moments ago. Did he see himself when he was a servant of God before he decided to run? Did he see himself yielded to the Lord in his life prior at a prior time? Sometimes we think and reminisce of those times when we first came to Christ or we first heard the call and we were dedicated we were committed to doing the work of the of the lord we were like that old hymn from francis havergal it says lord speak to me that i may speak in living echoes of your tone as you have sought so let me seek your erring children lost and lone oh strengthen me that while i stand Firm on the rock and strong in thee, I may stretch out a loving hand to wrestlers with the troubled sea. Oh, use me, Lord, use even me, just as thou wilt. And when and where until thy blessed face I see, thy rest, thy joy, thy glory share. And then we think, where are we now? And we wonder what happened. We remember those times. When we were deeply committed, we think, where are we now? We remember those times when one with us just wanted to be in the presence of God. Remember those times when there was nothing that would keep us from missing Sunday morning church. Remember those times? We said, where are we now? 
Where are we now? Perhaps we need to stop and like Jonah, we need to be reinvigorated by God's grace. We need to allow it to produce a dedication in our lives. Be dedicated to the Lord. Church, as we look around, we know the world does not know the Lord. We know the world doesn't know. We can look at our own church and see that there, there are people that probably aren't as dedicated as they should be. We don't have to look far. Shouldn't we be a people dedicated to him? Shouldn't we be a people dedicated to the Lord? After all, he's given us so much grace. God's grace produces dedication. Lastly, God's grace produces a sense of who God is. God's grace produces a sense of who God is. Look what Jonah says. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Now we read that and we think, well, yeah, no big deal. That's, that's nothing really profound. Salvation belongs to the Lord. We all, we all get that. We're good Baptists, right? We, we believe that salvation belongs to the Lord. Every good Baptist believes that. Um, we sing songs about it. Salvation belongs to the Lord. However, Jonah has personally experienced it. And now has more meaning to him than it ever did before. I'm pretty confident that Jonah knew this before. That he knew that salvation belonged to the Lord. He uttered it here in chapter 2. And I'm pretty certain as a prophet, Jonah knew that. He even had, had knowledge of who Elisha was. He knew this because Elisha's name means God is Savior. So Jonah knew that salvation belongs to the Lord. But now it has more meaning to Jonah. He was sinking into the depths of the sea. And, and now he's in the belly of a great fish. And he now personally knows from experience that salvation belongs to the Lord. You know, it's like when we come to church and we sing our songs and we do our thing and we, you know, we, we just get so used to running through the motions and doing what we always do every single Sunday. Every Sunday it's like the same thing. Well, we got to get up and go to church and we go to church and maybe we don't go to church. Maybe we go to Sunday school and we skip church or whatever, but we do our own thing. And you know what happens? It's meaningless. It's meaningless. We just do it. We just do it. In fact, if, if we were to probably do a poll, and I were to ask you as you leave this morning, why did you come to church this morning? Some of you probably couldn't even tell me why you were here. You're just like, well, I just, it's just the right thing to do. Right? I mean, sometimes we don't even know why we're here. Sometimes maybe it's for fellowship. Which, by the way, is a pretty selfish reason to be here, but sometimes that's maybe what we say. listen when God rescues you when God rescues you 
or he rescues a loved one. It's an entirely different story. When you get that phone call that your brother or your sister or your close friend has surrendered their life to Christ, they've been rescued. It's different. You know salvation belongs to the Lord. When a loved one has a disease or they're on their deathbed for something and God in His mercy and His grace, He heals them. Or even it's you and the doctors have no explanation. You know experientially that salvation belongs to the Lord. You cry out, God has saved me. He rescues you. And Jonah knew the rescue of the Lord. You know, I'm convinced sometimes we don't get so excited about church because we don't know what God has rescued us from. He's rescued you. If you're here and you know Christ, you are living under the rescue of God. He saved you from hell. And we come here to celebrate the fact that He resurrected His Son, Jesus Christ. And we should sing hallelujah. We should praise the Lord. We should say amen. It's okay to raise your hand. We've been rescued. And there shouldn't be anything that keeps us from being here. We should desire to be here. We should want to be here to celebrate that God has rescued us. It shouldn't be meaningless. We shouldn't just go through the motions. We've been rescued. You know, several years ago, when I was living in Pennsylvania, I was having these, these headaches. And I went in to the doctor, and they said, well, we're going to do some tests. And they put me in that, what's that, CAT scan, that tube, and makes all that noise and stuff. And got out, and I said, there's a spot on your brain. That's always good to hear, right? There's a spot on your brain. So I'm like, I'm like okay, I don't even know what that means. You know? And um, for some reason, they thought maybe I had, like, some Lyme disease. And... Uh, so I had to report to the hospital for a, um, what's that, spinal tap. And so I go into the hospital for the spinal tap. It's like a week later. I let people know, and uh, they're praying for me. I go in the hospital, and the doctor comes in. He says, why are you here? I said, well, I'm here for a spinal tap because, you know, they saw something on my brain. And he says, yeah, we don't see anything. There's nothing there. And, uh, you know, and then try to say, well, maybe they, maybe they misread it. I'm like, uh, there's no misreading there. You couldn't convince me it was misread. I know what God did. And there's something when, when God does something, you just, you just praise Him. You just want to be with other people. You want to tell other people. You want to express thanksgiving to God. In church, God has rescued us from far worse. He's rescued us from eternal damnation. And His grace should produce in us a sense of who God is to want to be here and call out to Him. You see, Jonah knew these truths about God. 
he had to some extent experienced God at work in his life, but now he knows God. He was in the darkness and the light shone in. He now understands the ultimate truth about who God is. And it's not that he is Israel's God. It's not that he is Jonah's God, nor it was that he was the God of their forefathers. The ultimate truth about God, which he now knows experientially, is this. That God is a saving God. Jonah now knows who God is, and he is now ready to go to Nineveh. He's now ready for the word of the Lord to come to him again a second time. If there is salvation for Jonah, then there can be salvation for Nineveh. So God spoke to the fish and it vomited him out on dry land. Salvation belongs to the Lord. I want to pause for a few minutes this morning and see the path which Jonah has come. See the length which God will go for his children. Seems that many have it stuck in our mind that God just gives up on us. If we decide not to do his will, he just kind of gives up. Well, they're not going to do my will. But in Jonah, we see the exact opposite. In fact, we see that God is willing to go to any lengths to bring us into the center of his will, no matter the price to us or to him. In reality, as followers of Christ, this should cause us to marvel at a God who, should, who, who would pursue us, even when we would want to do our own thing, even when we'd want nothing to do with God, that he would pursue after us. In The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, author C.S. Lewis depicts it this way. Peter, Lucy, Edmund, and Susan are in the world of Narnia. There's a land cursed by the white witch, making it always winter, but never Christmas. They hear of the promised Savior King of the land, Aslan. They inquire further and find out from Mr. Beaver that Aslan is a lion. Oh, said Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dear, and no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either more beaver than most or else just silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But... He's good. He's the king, I tell you. This is what Jonah discovered. Church, life is never safe as a servant of the living God. That's saying that there's no safer place other than the center of God's will is malarkey. It's not about being safe. It's certainly not safe if you're a servant that happens to be running from God. But God is good. And God is always working out every circumstance in our life for our good. 
Listen to Psalm 119, 75 and 76. I know, O Lord, that your rules are righteous and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. In faithfulness you have afflicted me. Let your steadfast love comfort me according to your promise to your servant. Jonah could now confess that psalm. How about you? This morning, perhaps in your life, you're experiencing suffering from sin because you fled from the Lord. Maybe this morning you need to call to the Lord like Jonah and taste of his mercy and understand that God gives grace. Maybe this morning you realize that you lack compassion or dedication or a sense of who God is and you understand that it's because you've not truly experienced the grace of God. This morning you can know God's grace. Or maybe this morning you just need to take comfort in who God is and know that even in the midst of your suffering, even in the midst of the deepest suffering that you could ever experience, it's not about being safe. God is good. We're going to sing a song. We're going to give you a chance to respond this morning. And then we're going to take up an offering after that. And then we'll go into our time of communion. I want to give you an opportunity to respond to the message this morning. And if God has spoken to you in any way. I'm going to give you that opportunity to respond to him this morning. I'm going to be standing right down front. Maybe this morning you need to come and and before you take communion, maybe there's some things you need to deal with. If you need prayer, I'll pray with you. You can pray in your pew. You can pray up here. You need to talk. I'll talk with you. Whatever it is you need, I pray that you come this morning. Let's pray and then we'll um, have a song of invitation. Father, I thank you.